Okay, turn with me to Matthew 10. We have been studying verses 24 to 42. And uh, so far, we have seen that a true disciple emulates his master. He fears God more than he fears the world. Last week, we looked at the fact that he confesses Christ. Verses 32 and 33 says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. It's a message that calls so-called Christians to self-examination. It's a message that says, look at yourself and your life and the confrontation with the world. Are you confessing or are you denying? Because your eternal destiny depends on that. Uh, the term everyone in verse 32 and whoever in verse 33 are inclusive terms, as we saw last week, that give a... Sober warning to all would-be and all professing believers for careful self-examination as to whether or not their profession is real or, or if it is genuine. Uh, notice the word confess in verse 32. It means to affirm, to acknowledge, to agree. It's not simply to recognize a truth, but to identify with it. Uh, the idea is a verbal statement of identification, faith, confidence, trust, and belief in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And it encompasses the subsequent life that follows from that confession. You confess before men. You confess with your mouth. You confess with your life as you live out that confession. You cannot be genuinely saved unless you're one who does this. If someone's not willing to do this, if you think that you can be a secret Christian that nobody knows about, you missed it. Um, if the person is a person is a true believer, they will acknowledge and confess Christ. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then verse 10 says, For with the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. So there must be that verification. Sometimes people say, well, you know, so-and-so once professed to believe in Christ, but their life gives no evidence, there's no fruit or anything. Uh, but they said they believed. Well, I'm sorry, they're not a genuine disciple because this is the mark of genuineness, evidence and fruit. Uh, a believer may have lapses in faithfulness. We, uh, you know, Peter denied the Lord. He, he didn't, couldn't, but he couldn't live with that denial. And so he went out and he wept bitterly and his heart was broken because he had so terribly failed and grieved the Lord. Uh, Timothy was a protege of Paul, the finest person he ever discipled. And yet years after he became a pastor in Ephesus, Paul had to write him in 2 Timothy and say, Do not be ashamed of either the witness about our Lord or me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. Why did he have to say that? Because Timothy had become ashamed of Christ and the gospel message. So Timothy had a lapse, Peter had a lapse, I've had them, you've had them. But in a true believer, there's a turning around. A true disciple confesses, as it says in Philippians 2.11, <clears throat> that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, that is the mark of a genuine Christian, a willingness to speak no matter how hostile the environment might be. Uh, then verse 33 gives us the other side of it. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Uh, and whereas that does apply to the unregenerate, 
The primary issue in verse 33 is about those who make an outward profession of Jesus Christ, but turn away when hard testing comes. Verse 33 is talking about someone in the sphere of Christianity, someone in the surroundings of discipleship, who follows outwardly, who goes along, but when it comes to the test, he denies Christ. You, and we've talked about ways that you can deny Christ. You can deny Christ by silence. Uh, you can deny him by your actions. You just live the way everyone else lives. You're denying Christ. Or you can deny him by your words. You can talk like they talk so that they don't know the difference between you and them. Another way we said that you can deny Christ with your words is by continually being vague and noncommittal about what you believe. So you can deny Jesus by silence, by actions, and by words. And I won't deny that genuine Christians have done all three of those. But that kind of denial as an ongoing pattern of life, without any repentance and change, it said, Jesus says it will be repaid by a denial on an eternal level when he denies you before that person before the Father in heaven. Why? Because such an ongoing pattern of denial is evidence that such a person isn't a true follower of Jesus Christ. So don't be one of those who are always looking to live a life of ease that avoids persecution, because that may indicate that you aren't a true follower of Jesus Christ. Remember, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 So affirm your confession of Christ by your words and actions. You don't want to be among those who Jesus says that he never knew. Uh, so he first we saw that he emulates his master, a true disciple, fears God more than men. He confesses Christ. And then verses 34 to 37, a disciple is willing to forsake his family. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves father or, or loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He says, in effect, if you want to know how serious it is to follow me, understand that I'm not here to bring peace. I come to bring a sword. I cause divisions. Following me will not only divide you from your former religion, from your reputation and from the world around you, it will also bring division from those who you hold most dear, your family. I force people to decisions that separate one from another. Now, Jesus' gospel message is indeed a message of peace because it offers the only way to bring peace between a holy God and sinful man, and it shows the only way for having truly peaceful relationships between people. But because the world system is evil, and man's fallen nature is sinful. God's offer of peace continues to be rejected and to be offensive to most of the world's people. And that brings conflict into the most intimate of human relations so that as verse 36 says, a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Uh, that's the, this is the worst possible fracturing of relationships that can be. I mean, it's certainly bad when you're at odds with your neighbors, or your boss or your co-workers, but when it gets to the family level and your commitment to Jesus Christ means that you're divided from your family, that's where it really begins to hurt. 
Those kind of things have happened. They're going to happen. Someone in a family commits him or herself or herself to Christ, and the whole relationship just falls apart because of the conflict between righteousness and unrighteousness. You see, what we're talking about is the lordship of Christ, because being a Christian is affirming your commitment to the lordship of Christ over your life to the point where you're willing to forsake anyone and everything for him. Some of you have had to make that choice. Uh, you confess Christ, it alienated your family from you. Uh, and, but that's the way we prove the reality of our profession. The person who says, I'm not willing to make that sacrifice, isn't a genuine believer. Um, and then verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What he's saying is you can't be my disciple and receive the salvation I offer if your family means more to you than I do. You must make that break. But there's one more thing, which is even more apt to rob Christ of his rightful place in the heart of an individual, even more than a family. And that's the love of his own life. Uh, you might be willing to take Christ and lose your family, but would you be willing to take Christ and lose your life? And that brings us to the point where we left off last week, which is that verses 38 and 39, a disciple offers up his own life. He says, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Now we're getting down right to where we live, aren't we? I mean, I might say okay to the family deal. After all, there's some of them I don't really love all that much anyway. Uh, but the Lord goes, the Lord goes one step further. And he talks about giving up your life. Now, now we're getting serious about who's truly a Christian, aren't we? The whole point of verses 38 and 39 is to stress one thing. Total self-denial to the point of death. Uh, Jesus is really zeroing in on who is a true Christian. First, he is one who's not afraid of the world. He's not intimidated by the world. Secondly, he confesses Christ no matter how hostile the forces may be. Third, he says, you love, I, he says to Jesus, I love you more than I love the people who are closest to me in this world. And if it comes down to it, I'll choose you over them. And now Jesus says, a true Christian says, I love death for Christ's sake better than life for my own sake. Verse 38 puts it so simply. It says, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Now, you've probably heard a million devotionals on that verse that try to tell you what it means to bear your cross, to take up your cross and follow Christ. And you've probably heard all kinds of things about what your cross is. Uh, someone's, a man might say, well, my wife is my cross. Uh, a woman might say, my husband is my cross. Um, or my teenager is my cross. Um, or your mother-in-law, or your job, or your junky car, or your nasty neighbor, or your boss, or even your debilitating, limiting disease. Listen, none of those are your cross. You've got to find a new category for all of them. What is your cross? What is it that you're to take up and follow him? Well, there are some people who read some kind of mystical spiritual identification with the cross at Calvary into this or some sort of crucified life idea. Remember, though, 
when Jesus is saying this to these disciples, they had never heard about the cross of Calvary yet. Uh, they didn't even know Jesus was going to die on a cross. Even after he told them, they still didn't understand it. So they don't see Calvary here. This isn't some weird mystical deal about the cross that they don't understand. And it isn't some devotional thing about some person or object in their life. When Jesus said, take up your cross, they knew immediately what he was talking about. He was talking about dying. How, how did they know that? They were from Galilee. With the exception of Judas Iscariot, all 11 others were from Galilee. And in 6 AD, only 22 years earlier, when Jesus and some of these guys were just young boys, there had been an insurrection in Galilee led by Judas of Galilee. He gathered a band together and decided to throw the Romans out, and of course the Romans won. And the Roman general Varus wanted to teach the Jews a lesson so he crucified over 2,000 Jews. And he put their crosses up and down the roads of Galilee. So everywhere the people went, they saw them hanging on these crosses along the roadside. And every Jew that was crucified carried the cross beam on their shoulders to their own execution as he marched to the cross. So these Galileans had seen all of that. And Jesus is talking to them in historical context. And he's saying, if you're going to follow me, you need to be willing to die rather than to deny me. And you need to be willing to take up a cross beam and march to your crucifixion. Crucifixion is the most excruciating, painful death man has ever invented. It's slow because as the body sags from the pain, it slowly suffocates the internal organs. And he's saying, you must be willing to go to the most excruciating, painful, torturous death imaginable. He really has the standard up there, doesn't he? Jesus isn't someone who you can get by with saying, yeah, man, I'd like to have Jesus. So I'll just say this little prayer, get my ticket to heaven punched, and then go on and live the way I want to live. Committing your life to following Jesus Christ means you're not only willing to forsake your family if need be, the people who are closest to you that you love the most, it also means that you would be willing to stand for Christ against a hostile world, even if it means losing your life. Yes? I, I always... Mm -hmm. said, yeah, I'm going along with you. I'm, I'm willing to die. And when I read that, you know, it's easy from sitting in this chair to have this bravado and say, yes, of course, I'm willing to die. But when the situation arises, like with Peter, Peter denied Christ. Mm -hmm. And so when Jesus gives these outlines of what we need to be willing to give up, how do we know, how do I not fall into a false rebuttal, false perception that I say, yes, count me in? Yeah, well, 
I'm not at all so naive to think that you might not do that or that I might not do that because we have Peter and these other disciples who all run away when Christ is arrested. But we also go to John 21, Casper, and we see Peter restored. And then as they're going along, Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die. And what does he say? One of these days they're going to stretch out your hands and you're going to die too. In other words, you're going to be crucified, Peter. Peter lived the rest of his life knowing that one day he'd be crucified. And yet he was faithful. So uh, it's, it's a matter of, of uh, yeah, there's false bravado, but genuine believers, God empowers to do it. That's all I can say. Well, he adds this thought in verse 39. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. What does he mean by that? Finding his life means securing your physical safety by denying Christ under pressure. If you're trying to hang on to your life and make sure you don't ever get in too hot or too deep, you'll lose your soul. That's what he's saying. Those who want to hang on to this life so badly that they'll deny Christ in order to hang on to that which they can keep forever, they can't keep forever, they're going to forfeit eternal life that can never be lost. But those who are willing to lose their life for Christ's sake will find eternal life in the end. That doesn't mean you get saved by being a martyr. It just means that if you're a genuine Christian, you're willing to do that. The issue is whether I live for me or die for him. Uh, that's the ultimate test. The one who confesses Jesus Christ and dies for it is far better off than the apostate who escapes death by denying Christ and receives eternal damnation. That's the issue. You see, it's better to lose everything in this life than to forfeit eternal life. It's better to lose your ease, your comfort, to be harassed and intimidated by the world. It's even better to lose your family. It's even better to lose your life than to forsake Jesus Christ. That's his whole point. It's not that we will necessarily have to do all of those. It's just that if we're true believers and it comes to that, we will do it. Now, up until now, Jesus, what Jesus has been saying has been kind of negative. So she's decided to divorce him because of Christ or sort of because of Christ? Well, it's one of, one of the many kind of reasons. And so I, I, you know, or... Let me ask this. Is she the believer or is he? Well, they're both believers. But they're both believers. But, you know, God doesn't call... If once he gives a covenant to a, a, a married couple, he doesn't no matter what kind of sin is going on there, he doesn't call them to divorce, does he? No, the, the situation as you've described it does not entitle them to a divorce uh, scripturally. Yeah. And Jesus says the only reason is what? Immoral, immorality, uh, where one 
party has been unfaithful sexually to that party. And then Paul lists another reason where it's abandonment by the unbeliever, by an unbelieving spouse who abandons the believing spouse. Beyond that, you can't find a scriptural basis for the others. Now, included in abandonment are things such as, you know, some art physical abuse, things like that. But uh, you wouldn't go um, to people who are both professed to be believers to say, well, you're not following Christ like I want you to, and there's all these other things, so I'm bailing. No. No. Okay? We on the same page? Okay. All right. So as I said, up till now, what Jesus has said has been kind of negative. So you might wonder, is there anything he says that's positive? Well, yes. The text ends on a very positive note. It's thrilling. Look at verses 40 to 42. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Some tremendous words of encouragement by Jesus here. When we proclaim the gospel and give our testimony, most will not believe, but there will be some who do. That's encouraging. It was for the 12 who were being sent out. It's also for us. Uh, everyone is not going to refuse the message. Some of us, some people are going to believe. Some are going to receive us. Some are going to receive Christ. So when you go out and you represent Jesus Christ and you speak of him and you give the gospel message, the people who believe it are the ones who receive you. It's a full receiving and they accept you and your message. They receive the Lord, they receive you. And they'll welcome you and accept you. They become of God, part of God's family with you. You become brothers and sisters in Christ. And as you build them up in the faith by teaching and instruction, you become even closer and a strong bond develops between you. If you want to see a biblical example, just read the first couple of chapters of 1 Thessalonians, as Paul expresses his love and joy and the bond between him and those believers in that church. And Paul referred to Timothy as, as his true child in the faith. Now, that's the kind of familial relationship that develops between those who trust Christ and those who lead them to Christ or faithfully disciple them. I have a uh, dear friend uh, with whom I worked as a deputy sheriff who sought me out when he first came to Christ because he was confused. Uh, he tried to talk to some other Christian deputies to get answers, but they didn't know what to tell him, so they referred him to me. <laughs> and he had been raised uh, in a home where his parents took him to a Southern Baptist church, and, but, but there was no other spiritual teaching and training in the family. Uh, he made a profession when he was in junior high school, uh, but years later, as an adult, after living his life for himself and destroying a marriage by infidelity, he was broken and he cried out to God for mercy, and the Lord heard him and transformed his heart. And he called me up and he asked to meet with me because he was confused. 
about whether he had just been a weak believer who was living in sin before, what a lot of people were typically called backslidden, or whether he had just then experienced genuine salvation. So after we talked and I went through the gospel with him and what genuine commitment to Christ looks like, he realized that his childhood profession had not been real and that he had just then become a true follower of Christ. He knew almost no doctrine other than the basic gospel. So he and I embarked on a year-long discipleship process in which I poured all that I could into him of solid theology and a biblical worldview. And a couple of years later, he left law enforcement. He went to Bible college and seminary, got both his bachelor's and master's degrees in biblical counseling. Today, he is one of the foremost biblical counselors in our area. Um, he's also a doctoral student for biblical counseling. Uh, many people from Lakeside have been greatly helped by his ministry. Uh, he's far exceeded my expectations. <laughs> uh, we're still very close, and when we talk, it's like talking to a younger brother, uh, a close family member. Why? Because he received me and received my teaching because he recognized it was from God because it came from God's Word. Uh, and he listened and he applied it and grew spiritually, and so he became my spiritual son in the faith. So on the one hand, you can create this antagonism with the world because of the sword that the of the gospel that divides. On the other hand, you recreate this marvelous reality that people receive God through you. I recall that years ago, a man came to this class each week with his wife for a year or two. And I knew he was an unbeliever. Uh, but obviously the Holy Spirit was working on him because he kept coming back week after week. And uh, finally, one Sunday, it suddenly made sense to him and he placed his faith in Christ. Uh, obviously, my heart was thrilled beyond words when I learned of that. He went on to grow and serve the Lord faithfully in this church for many years until they finally moved out of state. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm some kind of great evangelist who's going around leading people to Christ left and right. Nothing could be further from the truth. My point is simply that if God can use a frail human instrument like me as his agent, he can use you too. Uh, and when someone receives us, they receive the Lord and the Father who sent him. What an incredible thought. We don't just lead people to Christ. We lead them to God the Father. And they are then indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So in a sense, we lead them to the Trinity, as it were. It's like what Jesus said over in John 14. In verse 7, he says, If you've come to know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And verse 16, he says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate that he may be with you forever. And then in verse 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. Such a great thought. We get all three members of the Trinity. If you're a believer, you get God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three living in you. And it goes even beyond that. Verse 41 of our text. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. What's he saying? He means just what he says, that those who receive a prophet, those who are ministers of God's word, who speak the truth about Jesus, who proclaim God's revelation as found in the scriptures, will receive the same reward that the prophet receives who's proclaiming the message. And those who receive a righteous man will receive the righteous man's reward. 
Now, Jesus links those two kinds of men, prophets and righteous men together again in verses in chapter 13, verse 17 and chapter 23, verse 29. So they're so closely linked as to be very similar. The prophets are those who publicly represent Christ and proclaim his truth. And the righteous men are those who publicly represent God and live their lives in representation of him. They walk in his ways. They obey him regardless of the cost. A prophet must be a righteous man. A righteous man might be a prophet. And so Jesus says, when you go out representing God by your lips and your life, by your speaking, by your living, those who receive you will receive the same reward that you receive. You say, wait a minute. Does that mean I receive the message of a prophet or a righteous man I, that if I receive their message, I receive the same blessing they do? That's right. The, those who receive them will share in their reward. If the Lord gives me a reward for proclaiming his truth to you, he'll give you the same reward for receiving what I proclaim. That's so that we all share in that. And so on the one hand, when we proclaim, some people are alienated. But on the other hand, when we proclaim, some will receive the reward that God has promised to those who proclaim the truth. We both receive and share in the blessing. So do you want to be a blessing to the world? then confess Christ before men. Stand up boldly and don't mitigate your testimony. Don't be ashamed of Christ. Let your life so match your message that they see in you the transformed life of a believer and will be attracted to Christ. Become the source of their reward. I cringe inside every time I hear an interview on television with a successful athlete who claims to be a Christian and they water down their stand for Christ by saying, well, you know, I'm a person of faith, so I thank God for my victory. And they never go beyond that. I, I much prefer the athlete who boldly says, I want to give all the glory to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for what he's allowed me to achieve. Uh, there are people who have done just that. I think of people like Tim Tebow, uh, Benjamin Watson, Kurt Warner, uh, Allison Felix, all of whom who has boldly spoken out for Christ. Uh, don't water down your testimony into something that people from some from any other religion could say. Uh, look at verse 42. When you think of the prophets and righteous men, you think of kind of spiritually mature people. But the Lord expands his promise of grace still further. He says, and whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Who are the little ones here? They're young disciples, babes in the faith, as it were, uh, little nobody disciples. And Jesus says, when these young, immature disciples go out to proclaim the gospel and present me to others, those who receive them, me, receive them and demonstrate that by such a seemingly insignificant act as giving them a cup of cold water to drink simply because they're my disciples, it, you know, it isn't even possible that they're going to lose their reward. That's what that final phrase in the verse means in the Greek. Jesus uses the strongest possible negation that could ever be used in Greek. It means he will never, ever lose his reward. In fact, it's not even a possibility. So then people will be rewarded when they receive our message 
because they'll receive the salvation we preach. And they'll be rewarded when they receive us because they will share in the very reward we have for proclamation. And they will be rewarded when they help us along in our ministry, no matter how small it may be, because God will not hold back a reward to those who have shared in the ministry and his ministry. A disciple then is a person who's a determiner of destiny. And even the least of us shares with the greatest of us in what God does in blessing us. There's an old story told about a young lad in a country village in England many years ago. And he felt the call of God on his heart to become a minister of the gospel. But he didn't have much money. And finding time to study while having to work was very difficult. But in the village, there was an old cobbler, a shoe repair man, who helped him along the way. He was a godly man, and so he would encourage this young man spiritually. And when he could, he gave the young lad a little money to help buy the books he needed. And finally, after a long time, the young lad was licensed to preach by the church leadership of his denomination. And on that day, the cobbler said to him, I always had in my heart the desire to be a minister of the gospel, but the circumstances of my life never made that possible. You're doing what was always my dream, but never a reality. I wanted you to promise me one thing. I want you to let me make you a pair of shoes for nothing. And I want you to wear them in the pulpit when you preach. And in that way, I'll feel you were preaching the gospel I always wanted to preach, standing in my shoes. Whenever we become a, the source of blessing for others, we are blessed. And whenever other believers become a source of blessing to us, they are blessed. In God's magnificent economy of grace, in the least believer can share the blessing of the greatest. And no one's good work will go unrewarded. So then being a disciple of Jesus Christ is pretty incredible, isn't it? You become the source of conflict for most of the world, but for others you become the source of blessing. I pray we'll be willing to follow the Lordship of Christ at any price, any price so that some may be antagonized and some may be blessed. And so we finally, after what, three, four weeks, come to the end of chapter 10. Any, uh, any questions or comments? at this point. Okay. Well, we have a few minutes. So I can either start in on chapter 11 or we can answer questions. <laughs> so, okay. Look at the first six verses of chapter 11. And believe me, we'll review all of this again next week. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for someone else? And John answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now, before we look specifically at this text, let me see if I can explain a little bit about 
Matthew's approach and how he's written his gospel and how the next portion of the gospel fits together with what we've studied so far. As you know, Matthew has been presenting the kingship and the messiahship of Jesus Christ and trying to explain from a variety of testimonies to prove that Jesus is, in fact, the king and messiah. For example, in chapter 1, he began with a testimony of history, presenting the genealogy and the ancestry that points to Jesus as the Messiah. Then he presents the testimony of the virgin birth. As the text tells us, says Jesus was uniquely conceived by the Holy Spirit without a heavenly father, without a human father. <clears throat> then there is the testimony of fulfilled prophecy in chapter 2, as Christ fulfills the Old Testament predictions in detail. And then in chapter 3, there's the testimony of the forerunner, John the Baptist, prophet of God, a man filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, who says this is the Messiah. Also in chapter 3, there's the testimony of God the Father at Jesus' baptism, who says this is my beloved Son. Then in chapter 4, we have the testimony of power as Jesus himself defeats Satan, the archenemy of God. And then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, Matthew gives us the testimony of Jesus' own words, the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus speaks with truthfulness, power, and integrity, and authority, verifying his claim. And in chapters 8 and 9, there's the testimony of his works, healing, casting out demons, raising the dead, forgiving sin, all of those testifying of his deity. And finally, in chapter 10, as we've seen over the last several weeks, there is the testimony of Jesus about what it means to be one of his disciples, to be one of those who are so convinced that he is the Messiah King that they are willing to pay the dearest price of loyalty, loyalty to him, even death itself. So Matthew has laid out all of this tremendous evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the King, to those, and so his followers owe him all allegiance. That's his point. Now, as he approaches chapters 11 and 12, he has a new purpose in mind. Based on all this testimony by history, prophecy, teaching, and his discipleship, his disciples, what is the reaction of those who heard and saw Jesus? Matthew deals with that in chapters 11 and 12. In fact, he lists for us various types of reactions to the claims of Christ. And so in giving us a brief narrative of these events in the next two chapters, he gives us various categories of response to Jesus Christ. These chapters are filled with very common reactions to the claims of Christ, which are true back then as they, when he was walking among men, and they are just as true today. So, <coughs> so as we go through these chapters, we're going to see negative reactions or responses like doubt, criticism, indifference, rejection, amazement, blasphemy, and just curious fascination. And each of them, in a sense, is a kind of unique response all its own, although there's some overlap as well. But interestingly, at the end of chapter 11 and the end of chapter 12, we will see that Jesus makes an appeal for faith in him. After presenting all the various negative responses he calls for the positive response of faith in his listeners. So when we finish covering these two chapters, we will have run the gamut of possible reactions to the claims of Christ. And just as they were responses of people to Jesus back then, they are the same responses that we see today. 
and hopefully we'll understand a little bit better where people are coming from when they react to Jesus Christ. So that's just an introduction to those to the next two chapters, and I'm going to stop right there, and we will pick it up next week. Any uh, one last final chance for any comments or questions? Okay, and let's close with prayer. Oh. Update us. Tell us what you know. Still in rehab. Okay. All right. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction of your word. Lord, we pray that every one of us would be willing to give up everything, even our own lives, for your sake. It's so hard to think in these terms because we know how frightened we are when we're faced with nothing more than hostile words, unbelieving friends, and we just want to shut up. So, Lord, it's almost impossible to think in terms of dying for you. Lord, give us strength and faithfulness in that area. Lord, we do want to lift up Marilyn for her health and recovery, encouragement as she's still there in rehab. Lord, we pray now as we go on into the worship service that we would, uh, our hearts would be focused on worshiping you and that we would bring glory to you in all that we say and do. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.